You're listening to audio from The Village Church. This teaching is designed to be listened to after having completed the lesson in the workbook. It is not intended to stand alone. You can download the workbook at tvcresources.net. So for the past couple of um, weekends or weekends over the semester, I've just had the privilege of just going different places and just speaking to some ladies about the word. And so I remember one instance in particular that I had the opportunity to do an interview with... um, a woman who was single. Y'all know I'm single, so I like to talk about it. Um, and she is single, 60, never, six years old, never married. And so it was just a really, really sweet interview. She had a lot of wisdom. And so at the end, I asked her to give kind of what are some final points? What are some things that you can, advice that you can give to me and give to everybody else in this audience? And so one of them, the last one she said was that if you get to be my age and are single, you will be okay. All right, y'all, and if I was honest, I kind of teared up on that because it's real in the field. And I think this idea that if you're in an unexpected space, that you will be okay, that the Lord will be able to work through that situation, um, it was an anchor for me. Um, And I think that there are these truths in life that we return to that are anchors, that whether life is really good or life is really hard, we're able to kind of refocus ourselves. We're able to just see life through that lens and be where we ought to be. And so when I look at the text this week, there's a lot of things going on. And it might seemingly seem like these things aren't connected or how do we have one thing that traces throughout. And what I want us to rest on as we look at these chapters is that we need to hold on to the anchor. Ladies, and the anchor has and always will be God. And so what are the characteristics we're going to see about him through these chapters? We're going to see his justice and his faithfulness and his mercy. And so how do we, as we go throughout our lives and we read our word, hold on to the anchor of who God is and allow that to steady us, allow that to focus us, and allow that to have us do what we were created to do, which is to image him showing his majesty and power to all of creation. Life gets crazy and life gets hectic. If we don't know anything, we can see that from Samuel. Right, first and second Samuel, a lot happened with Saul and a lot happened with David. But what we see at the end is David refocuses to God. Through all the hard moments, through all the good ones, it was God that's the common denominator. And that's what I want us to do as we read through these chapters, is to hold on to the anchor. Hold on to God. So where are we now in the midst of this book? We are in the epilogue, right? And so the author is closing out the book using the structure of these next few chapters to make a final commentary on the career of David. You looked at it in your homework. It's this idea of a chiasm, right? Where the elements in the second half of the epilogue thematically correspond to those in the first half, but in a reverse order, creating a mirroring effect. We always talk about that the author's intent is to, he writes the narrative in a very intentional way. And so what he's trying to do is thematically connect things, and he's emphasizing. So we read about David's mighty men. We read these poems about how God has done so much for David, and we see his deliverance from natural disasters. You all saw that. All that is super intentional, and the the point that the author is trying to make. The epilogue highlights the major themes of David's career. His divine election and superiority to Saul, his success in battle, and God's willingness to restore him to favor— following acts of sin in times of chastisement. The events and poems here provide a microcosm of David's career and character. The author writes these last few chapters in such a way as to summarize the entire book of Samuel. And remember that we have two sides because of the amount of space that the um, scribes had to write on the scrolls. But it is meant to be seen as one whole piece. And that's what the author wants to do is summarize from the very beginning back with Hannah, all the way through Saul, all the way through Samuel, all the way through David. And that's what we're seeing in this epilogue. And so before we jump in, I'm going to give a disclaimer because we got a lot of names this week, (laughs) right? And so I'm going to do the same thing I tell about women who ask me about my red lipstick. I said, anybody can wear red lipstick. You have to do it with confidence. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to do it with confidence. We're going to read these names. And so we're going to get it. All right. So let's start at verse one in chapter 21. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. 
although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. We start out chapter 21 with this reality of a famine. Um, In a society without significant means to store food, a three-year famine would have been devastating. So we have just uh, immediate effects of something has happened, and David does what he should do as he goes to the Lord. And David, and the Lord tells David the reason for the famine, and that's because Saul made a covenant with the Gibeonites, and he broke it. Um, the Gibeonites were a Canaanite group who continued to live with Israel after deceiving Joshua. We can find out about them in Joshua 9, verses 3 through 27. But they were protected by their covenant with Israel. And so the fact that Saul killed some of them incurred a blood guilt, both as a murderer and break of the covenant. The covenant was a big deal, and Saul's actions incurred severe repercussions. Um, Joshua 9, 20, this we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And this was spoken by Saul and Israel's leaders. Oaths include acknowledgement of what would happen should that person violate the oath. So even though we do not see it outlined in Joshua 9, based upon what we can understand about ancient Near Eastern cultures, famine was a typical treaty curse, right? So when this oath was made, there would have been an acknowledgement of what would happen if they did not abide by it. And now we are seeing David having to incur the consequences for Saul's actions. Verse number three. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? And they said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzilia, the Mehithelite, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest." What we see is that the cost for Saul's actions is seven of his male descendants. Um, What we know about scripture is that seven is a number of completion. And so this number in no way probably compensated for the lives that were lost by the Gibeonites, but it represented for them um, what was lost um, and what was appropriate in terms of judgment. Um, The death of the men of Saul was to take place in Saul's hometown of Gibeah. Right, so again, that detail is important for us to understand that the consequences for Saul's actions were to take place in his own space. Um, that the Lord sees sin and calls for judgment, that he's righteous. And we're going to see that through the rest of this passage. Um, in verse 7, David redeems himself. Right? He has an opportunity to stand in accordance with the oath that he made with Jonathan. And so he spares Mephibosheth. Right? He honors the oath that he's made with Saul's son. Um, in contrast, remember the author is always making contrast between Saul and David um, to show a man after God's own heart, a man of God's choosing, and a man of the people's choosing. And so how do we see these comparisons between their behavior all throughout the text? And so while Saul violated a covenant he made with the Gibeonites, we see David uphold a covenant that he made with Jonathan. Um, we see faithfulness in his character highlighted. Verse 10. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, 
David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul at Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did and they did all that the king commanded, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. The timing of the death of the seven men was important. Um, in light of the famine, since they were executed at the beginning of the barley harvest, which occurs in April, this was traditionally the first grain harvested in Israel and preceded the wheat harvest. If famine was the issue, then the idea was to make atonement before anything could damage the harvest. And so again, it's just details that they're important for us to know the timing at which David sought the Lord because he wanted to be able to relieve the famine before harvest season started. We have mention of Rizpah and her response to her sons. The grief that a mother has for a loss of a child and the way that the author honors her by giving her mention and showing the care that she had for her sons she was out there for a long time and caring for them. And so I think just a space of honor, um, the memory by recording her radical example of motherly devotion. Um, it's also that we can see that the author wants to remind the audience, wants to remind us of the tragic consequences of Saul's sinful actions, which we have seen time and time again have brought death and suffering to his family. David sees Rizpah's actions and is inspired to give the bodies a decent burial, including the bodies of Saul and Jonathan, by burying them in the tomb of Saul's father. Um, although the decision to execute members of Saul's family was judicially acceptable to resolve the blood guilt, leaving the bodies exposed was not. Justice for genocide could not add excessive punishment. David could respond to God and resolve the land's need, but he also needed to the spur to provided by Rizpah in her loyalty to her family. Right, we see David show mercy. We see him show an appropriate amount of judgment, not in excess beyond what was set out by the Lord um, in the covenant agreement that had been originated by Saul. Um, and we see him act in accordance, and then the Lord relieves the judgment. He relieves the famine. And so we can see that to be that David has satisfied what God is looking for and satisfied his hope in, 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 in pointing towards righteousness. Again, we see a God who cares about sin um, and a God who cares about righteousness, but we will also see that same God is merciful. Um, we see that mercy through David, um, and we will also see God show him that same mercy through these chapters. Verse 15. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel." After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Cobb, and then Sibichai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants, and there was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanah, the son of Jari Orgonim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. The events in 15 through 22 are an echo of 1 Samuel 17. We see that David's story, when he pops up on the scene, begins with his defeat of a giant. And as we talk and read about the end of David's career, it ends with a talk of David still being a giant slayer. Um, 
and a giant slayer through his mighty men. Second um, Samuel five nineteen, the promise that God gave David that I will deliver the Philistines into your hand, he is still making good on. That this confirms the certainty of the Lord's deliverance of Israel from the Philistines. We see a consistency of God um, in the way that he is able to protect and provide for David through David's mighty men to be able to make good on the promises that he's made. Again, we see a confirmation of God's character and who he is that we can hold on to through these epilogue chapters. We have to hold on to the anchor. And the anchor in this chapter is we see our God is a God of justice. Our God is a God who does not, is not blind to the injustice of the world, whether it's against him or us. And our ability to trust that he will make what's wrong right. For us as believers, through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what's wrong has been made right through Jesus. And that we can trust and hold on to the anchor of God's justice to know that he hasn't forgotten the things that have happened. And he has and will make right those things. We hold on to the anchor and the anchor is God. Chapter 22. In chapter 22, you guys had a really cool table to be able to summarize all these things. And so I would love to read 51 verses for you but we're just going to summarize it together. <laughs> and so verses three and four, David uses several titles to praise God. He calls him his rock, his fortress, and his deliverer. These titles echo the times David was delivered from Saul in the wilderness. God saved David from violence, both from Saul's attempts on his own life and where David was saved from doing violence himself. David knows God is worthy of praise because he has called on him in the past and God has acted for him. And when we think of God as a rock, right? The image that the author, David, wants to paint for us is a rock cliff that he would hide in. I think sometimes we can think of the rock um, as some, a piece of strength, and it is, but it's also a hiding place. Of all the times and, and months and years that David was hiding from Saul, and the Lord protected him in that. And we're going to see in this psalm is that it is a psalm of praise. This poetry, beautiful recognition of what God has done. Um, and the character and consistency that we see in that. Verses 5 through 7. David talks about a specific situation where he was about to die. He doesn't give details, but clearly shows that it was something severe. He cries out to the Lord, and the Lord hears him coming to his aid. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. But in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To the, my God, I called, and from his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. To rest in a space, we were able just to sit and visualize what David was experiencing in those moments where death was upon him. That he had nothing else but God to cry out to, was at the bottom of a pit in his own physical and emotional and psychological state. And he calls out to God. And not only does God hear him, but he comes to his aid. Right? What David is recounting for us is a powerful story of deliverance a praise that is worthy for a God that has done so much for him. This is what David is taking us through. Verses 8 through 20. David uses powerful imagery to show God's power, his omnipotence. He was a consuming fire came from his mouth. David talks about how the earth trembled and it shook. He talked about how God parted the heaven and came down, that dark clouds were under his feet. He talks about the strength of power and also indicated God's wrath or anger against those who would seek to do David harm. God was protecting David in his own powerful way. Like verse 9, I mean, how many, how many times do we think about God like this? 
Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down, thick darkness under his feet. He rode a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy, thick clouds a gathering of water. Again, the creativity that David is using to describe the fierceness of God. And as I was walking through the homework, there was only one word. I'm sure there are plenty of other words we could describe God, but what kept screaming over and over again is that our God is powerful, that he is in control of all things and all creation and uses them for his own purposes. And in this place, David is recounting how his purposes was to save his chosen one in a powerful way. You think about the armies that were after David. David's own family members that were after him, Saul that was after him, and how David describes God's deliverance, the power of that deliverance. That's who our God is, and that's truth that we can hold on to. Verses 21, David's response to God's deliverance in his life. Gratitude, thankfulness, and honor. David recognizes what God has done and his powerful part in David's deliverance. But as you were reading verse 21, you might have just popped your eyebrow up a little bit. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. It might be hard for us to think that David's hands are clean. Um, With these verses, what we need to see is that David is not making a general claim about his life. He is referring to specific situations, specifically when he spared Saul's, Saul's life. Remember David saying, I will not bring harm to the Lord's anointed. The two opportunities in 1 Samuel 24 and 26 where David had an opportunity to take Saul's life, where his mighty men were like, bruh, it's time. And David said, no. I won't because the Lord hasn't given me direction to do that. God has honored David's righteousness with favor. Within this, we also recognize that David has been punished by God and forgiven. So we see this, this theme or this dynamic present in David's life that God honors righteousness. And there have been moments where David has explicitly chosen to follow the Lord. He's explicitly chosen to say no to opportunities because he knew they would be dishonoring to what God had for him. And when sin was brought to his eyes, he repented. And we will see that again in these chapters this week. David's whole life was not clean. That's super clear. But what we do know, unlike Saul, is that he was a man who desired to be righteous. And when sin was brought to him, he repented. That heart is what we need to emulate. And that truth is what we need to see from these passages. 36 through 31 through 46. David talks about God's provision. He specifically talks about the strength God provides David, calling God my rock. Again, a space of safety, a rock cliff where David would go and hide. He says, he arms me with strength, trains my hands for battle. David's military prowess comes from the supernatural power of God. David says, you provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. I pursued my enemies and crushed them. You arm me with strength for battle. David talks about all his military exploits and how God provided him with strength from the battle. What the book of Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, show us is that David was a man of victory and that he would continually go out to war and he continually would win. And you remember the passages where they would just name off the numbers, right? It wasn't a couple of people. It was thousands. And the author was intentional in mentioning that because he wanted to know the massiveness of David's victory, that David was known and he was feared. But what David said is, I wasn't known and feared because of me. I was known and feared because of the Lord. The Lord is the one who taught me how to fight. The Lord is the one who gave me the strength. The Lord is the one who gave me the favor. 
Again, we continually see David give credit where credit is due, that the Lord works through his servants and he's worked through David. But all of what David has done and his military exploits belongs to the Lord. God is the one that works the victory. And that's the truth that we have to hold on to. 47 through 51. There is a celebration of God's character. When David says in verse 47, the Lord lives, he's not merely giving a commentary on God's existence, but a highlight of God's active presence and intervention in his life. In verse 51, David acknowledges the hesed or the steadfast love that God shows him. A love that is unfailing and covenantal. A love that will bless David's descendants and ultimately flow through Christ to us. God had said that he was committed to David and David is celebrating that God kept his word. He has shown up with faithfulness and deliverance and strength for David. Verse 50, for this I will praise you, O Lord among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed and to David and his offspring forever. This is a point to the Davidic covenant that God has committed himself to make David's descendants, his household last forever. And we know that that points us towards Christ. This hesed love, this unfailing love that God is committed to that. And David is celebrating that. Celebrating that amidst all his difficulties, all his trials, all his wars, what has remained consistent is God's faithfulness and commitment to him. And we see at the beginning of this section that what we start with is a broken covenant. But David reminds us that God has made a covenant with him that he will not break. And that is what he celebrates. We hold on to the anchor and the anchor is God. And the truth that we can see from these chapters is that God is a God of deliverance and strength. That the victory is what comes through him. That he is a sustainer. He's the one that allows us to persevere. He's the one that gives the strength. That he will work through his servants. I mean, he works through other people for his purposes. But ultimately, as David did, we should be a people who point to God that every good and perfect and glorious gift should remind us of who God is. We hold on to the anchor, and the anchor is God. Chapter 23. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper all my help and all my desire. In these first few verses of chapter 23, David is beginning a reflection on his career. His life as king over Israel and Judah and all the things that God has allowed him to accomplish And he begins with a divine oracle about the Lord's spirit speaking through him and David's response to what he hears. This poem is in connection with the one before in chapter 22 and provides bookends for the book of Samuel. Again, 1st and 2nd Samuel. If we think all the way back to 1st Samuel 2 with Hannah's song, we see the same themes presented in David's poems as we saw in Hannah's song. And we also see this as a theological summary of David's career. In verse 3, David says, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. The divine oracle speaks of the benefits of the righteous ruler. Righteousness which entails adherence to God's moral standard. Such behavior finds its source in the fear of God. 
And so what David is telling us is that his righteousness, the ability to righteously rule his people, has its motivation in a fear for the one he represents. That he understands God's moral standard. And we understand David's brokenness and his sin, and we see it traversed through his family. But again, in his repentance, we understand him one to know that he fears God. When brought to that measure of point of recognizing his wrongdoing, David repents. And as he looks back over his career, looks back over his ruling of Israel and Judah, what David sees is that he sought to righteously rule his people because he feared the one who created his people. Verse number five, for does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. Again, this is a reference to the Davidic covenant, God's commitment to dwell with his people. This statement in verse five makes an important reminder about what God was doing with his covenant with David. David was to promote righteousness and fear the Lord, and in doing so would be an instrument of divine blessing for his people. At the same time, David could be confident in his covenantal relationship with the Lord, knowing that the divine promise had been formalized and secured. The chosen king must promote God's moral standard. Fearing the Lord has important manifestations in our lives. Fearing the Lord has important manifestations in our lives. That what David was gripped by is his responsibility to reflect God's moral standard. He was gripped by holiness. This idea that he should be an image of the God who created him. And we think about what it means to be an image bearer. It means to promote God's majesty and power to all of creation. In the same way that David was gripped by holiness, we ought to be gripped by holiness. And holiness is all-encompassing, that God desires to transform our entire person because of the person and work of Jesus Christ to reflect who he is. All the rooms in the house that we remain open to him and the ones we like to lock and close and say he can't come in. He wants all of them. And that we release them to him because we fear him. And not a fear that has us trembling in the corner in fear of judgment, but that we fear out of reverence. That we give God the reverence that he's due. He's holy and set apart. And he desires to be in community with us, but we recognize what that means and what that costs. And we have lives that reflect that. Fear the Lord has important manifestations in our lives. How are you being gripped by holiness? Not in a way that is debilitating or crushing, but a way that is empowering us to do what we were literally designed to do. David ruled his people justly because he had an appropriate fear and reverence of God. May we be women who engage with the people in this world justly because we have an appropriate fear and reverence for God. In verse 8, David starts with his mighty men. I always get a kick out of this passage because I have a friend, like I think every single person, single woman needs that guy who will just like say, they hurt me, I need you to go beat them up and they ask questions later. And I have one of those friends and he was like, yeah, I'll be one of David's mighty men. And I was like, you're a little rough, but it's okay. Um, and so that's what David goes into is the men whom through God works his purposes for David's benefit, the benefit of Israel and ultimately the glory of God. Verse 8, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Basepheth, a Tachyamite, he was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahoi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And the next to him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Herorite, 
the Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped at the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in a stronghold. And the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. And the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who weren't at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now, Bishai, this brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief of the 30. And he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehodiah, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehodiah, and won a name beside the three mighty men. And he was renowned among the 30, but he did not attain to the three. And David sent him over his bodyguard. Ashahiel, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shemad of Herod, Elika of Herod, Heleds of Peleite, Ira, the son of Ikesh of Tekoa, Ebiezer of Enoth, Mabunai of Hushethite, y'all, I'm going to work this out, <laughs> Zalman the Ahoite, Maharai of Nethophah, Haleb, the son of Anah of Nethophah, Ittai, the son of Rebai of Gibeah of the people of Benjamin, Benaiah of Pirathon, Hidai of the brooks of Gosh, Abi Alban the Arbathite. I'm going to jump down to verse 39. <laughs> Be real transparent with that. <laughs> All right. David's mighty man. <laughs> so you had some matching that you had to do in your homework. And you saw that Eleazar fought until his hand struck the sword. Shema was abandoned, but he fought the Philistines alone. Abishai was a leader of the three and killed 300 men. Benaiah in charge of David's bodyguards. And Joseph was the chief of the officers. We see a, a description of what these men were able to accomplish on behalf of Israel and behalf of David. But what we see scattered throughout is that God gets the credit for the battle victories. This poem confirms David's recognition of all that God has done through his men. Human endeavor is vital, but submission to God is more important. God is carrying out his work through his servants, transforming individuals and societies. His actions reflect the truth we see in Hannah's prayer, the reversal of fortunes where the powerful are broken and the power broken are made powerful all by God's hand. But in the hall of fame, David lists Uriah last. And hopefully you were able to see that. Again, everything we see in scripture is intentional. This simple act of naming a soldier again evokes David's sin. The penalty for David's sin had been paid, but through Hannah's song is a source of rejoicing for the weak. And it continues to warn the powerful, a warning David and his descendants need to heed. That David has been forgiven, but we remember so that we do not repeat. Hold on to the anchor, and the anchor is God. And what we see about God in these chapters is his righteousness. Again, we talked about the fear of the Lord and how that's connected to holiness and how that's connected to David ruling justly because he had a right reverence for God. And we also see David's mighty men working out justice on behalf of David 
as instruments of God bringing himself glory as he brings victory to his own people. We hold on to the anchor, and the anchor is God. Chapter 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Error and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. The first verse, we see that the anger of the Lord is incited. Author doesn't necessarily tell us specifically what it is just yet. But when we see that, we can pretty much assume that it's connected to sin. What we see in the second half of that verse is something difficult for us to be able to read. Um, And he incited David against them. Go, number Israel and Judah. Or this question of how is God going to incite David to do something and then hold him responsible to do it? And I think it's how we have to sit in this space of this tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. The author does not clear that up for us. What we know is that God is good in all the things that he does, even though that goodness is not understandable to us. And we also know that God has used things that are not particularly positive to further his purposes. And we've seen that even in 1 Samuel um, with God's treatment of Saul. And so again, there aren't easy answers for this particular space, but we rest in that tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility and it's a tension that he himself understands. In our trusting of him, we rest in that space. Verse number 10. Before we get there, I want to highlight the numbers that were given. Right? There was a specific count that David was looking for, and he was counting the valiant men, the men who drew the sword in both Israel and Judah. And that's going to connect to why David feels convicted in these next verses. Verse 10, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel of the Lord, angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord. And when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. David was convicted. Points back to 1 Samuel 16, 7. 
But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his high fires rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. David counted his men for a specific reason. And we can believe in that David was motivated by pride. He wants to know how many men he has in his nation that can bring him victory. Or it could have been a lack of faith in God's ability to protect the people. What we know is that he was out of step with what he should have been in step with for God. That he shouldn't have counted his people. And he knew that immediately. I have sinned greatly in the Lord in what I have done. We see David for the second time repent. And he admits to being foolish. Which is a word that should point us back to Saul. Specifically, when he refused to wait for the prophet and offered the burnt offering on his own, Saul himself admitted to acting foolishly. David understands what he's done. The Lord gives David three choices. And David decides that he would rather be punished by the Lord than by man because the Lord is more merciful than man. David appeals to God's tender love when he confesses his sin Because the reality is that God's love for us exceeds the compassion that a mother has for her child. God's love for us is deep. And that's why David chose judgment from God himself, not the hand of man. But within it, we see that God's mercy does not eliminate all consequences of sin. It simply causes the Lord to lessen the extent of his judgment. In 24, verse 16, we see the mercy of God. And that God relented when the angel put his hand towards Jerusalem. We're going to see the same mercy presented to Israel in the temple. What's very unique, and we're going to read in these next verses, is that the space where David makes his sacrifice is the space that his son will build the temple. So the imagery there, that the mercy that God has on the people of Israel, he will have in a rich way through the temple. And the author wants us to be able to note that. Verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arunah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And Arunah went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arunah said, why hasn't the Lord, the king, come to the servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arunah said to David, let my Lord, the king, take an offer at what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and yokes of the oxen for the wood. In all this, O king, Arunah gives to the king. And Arunah said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Runa, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord from my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. David is told to go raise an altar to the Lord. And again, it would be in the same place that his son Solomon would build the temple. Second Chronicles 3.1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. What we see is David's repentance, and he recognizes a need to make atonement to his God for the things that he has done. In your homework, you were asked to address why David would want to buy the threshing floor, that why he wouldn't just take it for free, the depth of reverence that he had for God, knowing that he knew the massiveness of what had happened and he did not want to make an atonement that he himself had not had to sacrifice for. Um, When we see him pay for it, that's what we need to acknowledge, that there's a deep fear and reverence that that David has for God, an acknowledgement of the sacrifice that had been made and wanting to honor God um, for what he believed he should be honored for. Hold on to the anchor, and the anchor is God. 
And the characteristic of God that we see in this last chapter is God's mercy. It's connected to his judgment that there are consequences for David's actions, but we see our God be merciful, and we see that mercy point to a future mercy that will come at the temple, and for us an even future mercy that will come through Jesus Christ. We hold on to the anchor, and the anchor is God. We've seen highs and lows through 1st and 2nd Samuel. We've seen some good stuff. We've seen some bad stuff. And we've seen some really ugly stuff. And through it all, David has remained with the Lord. Again, these sections might seem not connected. Different stories that we can't find a thread to. And my hope is that what we see is through it all that David held on to the anchor and the anchor is God. In our lives, as we look at the example of David in a story and it points us to our God, my hope is that we get that. That as we read the word and we pick up on the characteristics of God, we put them in our pocket for us to hold on to those angers and pull them out when we need them. We learn who God is in the light so we can hold on to him in the dark. We can hold on, him, hold on to him when the lights go out. And so in the good and the bad and the hard we press into who God is in the same way that David did and live lives that are captured by a fear and reverence for him, hoping, pushing to live in holiness. So I want to close us today with a verse from this song and this hymn. Um, through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, Through it all, I've learned to depend on his word. I thank God for the mountains and I thank him for the valleys. I thank him from the storms he brought me through. For if I'd never had a problem, I wouldn't know that God could solve them. I'd never know what faith in God could do. Through it all, we hold on to the anchor. Through it all, we hold on to God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a divinely inspired and illuminated text that you have given us, a story that we are a part of. Um, And we thank you for the story of David and what we can learn from his life, from the hard moments and from the glorious moments. And what we learn is that he held on to you. And so let us remember your character that were displayed in these last few chapters, your mercy and your righteousness, your deliverance and your strength and all the things you deposit in us, Lord, and let us use them to be who you designed us to be, image bearers, declaring your majesty and power to creation. Let us hold on to you in the same way that David did. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen.